Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 21st, 2013, and my guest is Anat Admadi of Stanford University and the author with Martin Helwig of The Banker's New Clothes, What's Wrong with Banking and What to Do About It. Anat, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me again. Your new book, The Banker's New Clothes, is now one of my favorite books on the crisis, and I've read quite a few. What the book does is it takes you step by step through how debt works for an individual, for a bank, for a nation. And one of the things you learn, even if you know something about debt, is that debt is tricky. You talk a lot and very, very clearly about the incentives that debt creates, the side effects of debt, the fragility of debt. So if you find balance sheets confusing or equity a scary word, this is a great book for you. And even if you already understand these things, you'll get a better understanding. So what we're going to do is we'll go through some of the basic ideas of the book to start with the podcast, and then we'll get into some of the policy applications that you also deal with in the book. So I want to start with what a bank is. Now, a commercial bank, what we think of as, and you use the example in the book of the Bailey Savings and Loan from It's a Wonderful Life, what a commercial bank does in its simplest form is it takes in deposits and it lends out those that money to people who don't have enough. So people who have extra money, savers, go put that money in the bank. The bank then lends the money to people who don't have enough, say, for a down payment or excuse me, not for down payment, but for the cash to buy a house outright. They would need to borrow some of the money. So what a bank does in, in that simplest of stories is they're just an intermediary. They take my money as a saver, and then I become a lender to the bank. They, the bank then lends that money out to someone else. And I don't want to have to find those people. I don't want to have to find people who want the amount that I want to lend. I don't want to have to vet and check the credit risk of the people that I would lend to. So in that story, all a bank is is just an intermediary. It finds lender, it finds borrowers for the lenders who put their deposits in the bank. And of course, the bank makes a profit. It takes a little bit from the borrower, a little bit from the lender. That makes sense. I'm still better off. I still get interest on my uh, deposits. The person who borrows the house still has to pay some interest back, but not as much as they would if, or they at least get to buy the house. There's competition among banks that keeps the spread the amount that they borrow at and then lend out small to cover their costs and a little bit of a profit. And that should be the end of the story. Banks are just intermediaries, but it's not the end of the story. Why are banks fragile? Why does that business model, that simple business model of transforming my loan into someone else's loan, my my savings into someone else's mortgage, why does that become complicated? Well, they have fancy ways to talk about banks, and we try to unpack those. They talk about maturity transformation, liquidity transformation. What that means is really that the depositor, the pe- the, the the people who lend to the banks, oftentimes um, want their money quickly, especially deposits, demand deposits. But uh, when they invest it, they kind of invest it longer term and in less liquid things. So there is a sort of imbalance between uh, – sort of the money that they use to fund and their investment in the sense of the length of time until, you know, something has to happen. And also sort of the, the, the quick, the speed with, with which, you know, they, they, they have to pay versus get paid. Uh, and so the, the, that, that mismatch uh, creates fragility by itself, which also means, for example, that if all of us run to the bank at the same time, then the bank might not be able to uh, cover all of that. And if even if it technically would be solvent, it has everything, that's kind of an inefficient run that you could have in principle. So basically, the banks tend to run a little bit more than other people into liquidity problems. You could say that's just I have the money, but I just you know didn't go to the ATM kind of thing. Uh, I can pay you back, but, you know, we're going to have to find a liquidity uh, solution, sort of a rolling back my debt. But that means that their funding 
is kind of fragile uh, by by almost by definition because of the way the way it comes and the way it kind of can come back for for their money uh, on a short notice or or, or any time they want. So, so that's kind of part of the funding. So, and then the investments are not as liquid or longer term than that. But of course, as a depositor, in the absence of deposit insurance, if we imagine a bank just coming into creation for in the abstract. In, in, a, in a world that doesn't exist right now, but did exist in the past. Mm-hmm. In the past, when I put my money in the bank, I was aware of the fact that it could go broke. Yeah, uh, it might. There might be not enough assets backing yep. up my deposits, so that I might not be able to get my money back if I didn't get in line early enough. Mm-hmm. So, how did banks in the in the pre-deposit insurance days? How did banks reassure people that they would get their money out when they wanted it? Well, banks way back before there were a lot of ways that they got supported to pay back their debts, such as deposit insurance and and other lenders of last resort. Access to the Fed. The Fed and (laughs) central banks, they had a lot more equity and and their equity funding, the owner's equity, didn't even have limited liability. The owners were personally liable. It was like a partnership, uh, private uh, business with unlimited liability. And that's what depositors needed to trust the bank with their money. So in the 19th century, you know, it was for 40, 50 percent. It kind of started declining. And as banks became only limited liability, really in the U.S., and uh, after deposit insurance was introduced, even through the Depression, there was increased liability for bank owners um, and much higher equity levels, it still wasn't enough in the depression. And then there were basically still losses that even with bankruptcies of owners were not sold. But uh, but yes, the banks used to have a lot more equity. It may not have even been enough and banking was fragile for other reasons. But uh, so our view is that it was never like fully efficient. They always kind of wanted to live slightly more on the edge than is efficient. But they certainly had a lot more equity than they have now. And that was kind of the way the depositors had to have it or they wouldn't really trust the bank. Now, we could spend the rest of the hour, we're not going to, but we could spend the rest of the hour very carefully, as you do in the book, looking at uh, what equity is, how it works, how different levels of equity affect returns, riskiness, fragility. And again, I, I really recommend the book for that. And it's it's not as riveting as Stephen King. I'm not a big Stephen King fan, so maybe that's not, I'll say uh, Charles Dickens. It's not as riveting as Charles Dickens, but you will get a lot smarter when you're done. It's not boring. It's not dreary. It's just steady and straight and clear. So I recommend that. But in the meanwhile, what what I do want to talk about is just this word equity. So let's try to, as you point out in the book, one of the biggest problems with talking about this is that people confuse capital and equity, and they use them interchangeably. But let's talk about equity first. And then we'll talk about why that confusion arises. So if I am a bank and I get together with a group of people and I want to start a bank, I can't in the old days before deposit insurance, I couldn't just say to people, hey, put your money in my bank. I'll give you 3% interest and I'll be lending it out. That's how I'll be raising the money to cover your interest because I'll be getting these mortgage payments back. that Let me cover that interest that I'm going to owe you. And so just give me your money. And people would rationally say, well, what if – some of those mortgages go broke. Or what if a bunch of people who lend you money or put in savings suddenly want it at the same time? And since bankers knew that and depositors knew that, to get people to lend money to your bank, to deposit money in your bank, you had to have your own equity tied up with it. So let's take an example of 50% equity. So with 50% equity, I would collect a million dollars from depositors say, I would put up a million dollars of my own money, or the bankers, the, the partners in the bank, again, before limited liability, we would each put up enough money to raise a million of our own. We take a million from depositors, and that would give us $2 million that we could potentially lend out. And if we lent that out, right, then mm-hmm. if we lent that out, let's say, and all the lenders – all the, the lenders wanted their money back, or a better example would be if all the mor- a bunch of the mortgages went broke, say half of them, so I had half as much money coming in, I'd still have enough money to pay back my depositors, correct? That's right. And if I had, say, 30%, let's say I took in 
700,000, or one, let's make, keep this, the numbers the same, 1.4 million in deposits, and I put up 600,000 of my own money, we the owners of the bank, then we'd have 30% equity, 30% of the total assets and liabilities of the bank would be coming out of our own money rather than borrowed money from depositors. And that way, what would, why would that be better than the current world? Well, in the current world, they don't have any anything like the numbers you're talking about. You're talking about 30, 40, 50% equity. The numbers that banks have right now are in the single digits and sometimes very low single digits. And you don't have to look very far to see that. Look at the crisis in Cyprus right now. You had banks in Cyprus taking in a lot of deposits from all over uh, from Russia too, and from their own people, and actually, it turns out, promising to pay them four to five percent, which is above market riskless rates. And so, how were they trying to deliver that? Well, obviously, they were had to take risk to try to deliver four to five percent. However, they had almost no equity to speak of, very little. They may have even been in compliance with the regulations that are so insufficient and flawed. Uh, And we can talk about that later. But uh, right now, when they incurred losses, there is nowhere to turn. And they all of a sudden need bailout or to to somehow tax their, or whatever they call it, default basically on their depositors. So in the recent crisis in in the United States and and other parts of the world, of which Cyprus is just the latest variant on, Mm-hmm. As you said, equity re- equity as a percentage of total liabilities was not just single digits, typically less than 3%. And I, I think it's important to remember, we've talked about this on the program, but it, it bears repeating. If, if I have, for every $100 that I invest as a bank, if two of it, two of the 100 is mine, and 98 comes from uh, borrowing, and it's right. not just depositors the way we think of savings. These are people who lend money. And the only important thing, I th- correct me if I'm wrong or not, but the only thing that's important to remember is that a borrower is somebody who gets a fixed return. They don't share in the upside. They only get the downside, and they are promised a fixed amount on their uh, bond it's or loan. Promise. It's a legal promise. It's what? It's a legal promise. It's a promise. So if I put in two of the 100 myself and forty and 98 comes from – Borrowing, which is a 45 to 1 ratio. Now, that's very normal, unfortunately, in the modern world. That means, and this is the, the, the cool part, not so cool it turned out, but that means that if the assets that I invest that $100 into, if they depreciate, if they fall in value by more than 2%, that means that the implicit collateral to pay back those loans is now worth less than the promises I've made. Water, basically. I'm underwater, and I have I cannot keep my promises, and I'm bankrupt. Um, I- well, you might not go bankrupt quite because you might not default. You might be insolvent, but not bankrupt yet. That's exactly where the sort of blurry line comes in for the banks. You know, they they might remain in the hidden insolvencies. We've seen that, and in fact, we probably see it around us. That they somehow manage to live, but they're actually, uh, you know, very distressed or insolvent, very weak. Now, one of the things you hear, uh, so so your solution, uh, and and it's one I'm, I'm I would be happy with. We'll talk about some different solutions later. But your solution then is just if you want to have a, a stable financial system, it's pretty straightforward. What do you need to do? Well, you need to reduce dramatically this indebtedness and you need to increase dramatically the reliance on equity funding, which is basically the way all other corporations in the economy fund for the most part without having to regulate them. Now, when we talk about equity funding, in our little example of the bank, the example was the owners put up their own money. That's one form of equity. Of course, you can also issue stock. Corporations, yes. And that's... That stock is a different kind of promise than debt. Stock is you, you, you share in the future profits of the company, but there's no guarantee. There's no fixed amount you're promised. Uh, it just depends on how profitable or unprofitable the company is. The point about equity is that there isn't really that promise. And there are the, there is a upside, and but that only you get that after you pay your debts. So uh, the, the equity has 
returns and uh, it has risk and the return is supposed to be compensating for the risk on average. And that's how these markets work. And the economy funds itself with plenty of equity all the time among among the best way for corporations and businesses to uh, to grow and invest is first and foremost to invest their profits. That's equity right there. That is basically, if you have a good thing to do with the money, that's how Warren Buffett find, funds some of his investment. He then never pays them out. He just keeps investing. Or you could issue stock. Yes, or you could issue stock. In other words, corporations do not need to borrow in order to invest. And many of them don't. They use some borrowing and there are some tax advantages to borrowing or maybe that we can tell some stories. But uh, but uh, basically, equity is, is a fine and useful way to fund it in the U.S. We have very nice working equity markets that uh, that many that most corporations, especially the publicly traded ones, use uh, happily. And so the, the claim then, <laughs> what? Except the banks don't like them. The banks don't like them. Now, uh, the question, that's the fascinating question. It's sort of the... Um, it's sort of the centerpiece of your book, which is yes. the the bankers will will claim, well, we're mm-hmm. different. We're different. We're not like Apple Computer. Apple Computer doesn't borrow any money. In fact, they they're sitting on a lot of cash, mm-hmm. uh, in the and that's part of their equity. Um, and the bankers say, uh, no, no, here, none of that. You don't understand. Our our industry is different. Mm-hmm. And if if you make us uh, have higher equity levels, we won't be able to do our job. That's their claim. We won't be able to be as effective. It's not efficient for banks to have to have the high equity levels that other corporations have. Uh, is there any truth to that? No, it's just it's, the the types of things that they would say if you press them on this are vary from absolutely nonsensical to to just flawed in the context of the policy. Basically, they they don't like equity for reasons that we explain in the book. There are a number of forces that make them not like equity. Uh, but when you step back about how we want them to fund, there's absolutely no reason that uh, that they should not fund with a lot more. And they will be a lot more productive for the economy and a lot safer. So everything you can think about, about them funding with more equity, just removes distortions and corrects distortion and, and helps. Everything about it is like 10 good things. And everything that they say that's bad about it is just the way that this particular funding mix works from their narrowest of perspective, from where they are right now, and given the subsidies they're given when they borrow, and the way they're compensated, all these things that have nothing to do with uh, with the, their ability to function or their ability to do things at the appropriate you know, cost that's are in the economy. Yeah, uh, high levels of leverage, that is high levels of debt relative to equity, are, it seems to be good for bankers but not good for banks necessarily or the rest of us. There are very few people who, who benefit and it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's almost like they're addicted to it and it's almost like we would sort of help the industry except for the subsidies, uh, which, you know, maybe they pass on, but there is not a huge amount of evidence that they do. But even if they do, it's distortive that, that somehow, um, if we if we correct that, that something would would be bad. I mean, it starts with the, this confusion that you said between you kind of hinted at, and you almost slipped into saying hold capital because that's how they use the word, and that sort of sends you to the wrong side of the balance sheet because it sounds as if what we're talking about is cash reserves, and some people would tell you that we're talking about a rainy day fund, but that's not what we're talking about. It's not about cash sitting idle. It's about the way you fund your loans. All right, so people, when they hear the phrase, and I have to confess, I used to misunderstand this as well. And we we did talk about this in our first podcast together, right. and I I've gotten a little bit smarter since then. Time has passed. I've read your book. Uh, I've thought about it a lot more. Somehow, it makes more sense to me then as it did than it did then. But the idea is that when you hear the phrase "higher capital requirement," it makes it sound like you have to set money aside in case you say lose. Uh, your assets lose value. It's like cash. Like. Right, but that's not what it is. Explain what it is. It's just basically your assets minus your liability. It's the amount that's not committed to borrowed fund as a fraction of your assets. That's equity, basically. You know, capital regulation is a whole kind of other can of worms. They allow some other things to be counted as loss absorbing, uh, absorbing but it's meant to be the part of your funding that can absorb losses. 
Right. So, so for example, if, if we required, if the United States or other countries required their banks to have, say, a 25 percent uh, equity requirement, that tw- is not is not 25 percent of your assets have to be set aside. It means that of your of your for every hundred dollars of investment you make, 25 has to come from either your own money or money you raise through stock. Uh, yep. Or cash, if you have it, but it, it, promising. Yep. it doesn't mean it's sitting around. Now, I think the key for me, and tell me if I'm wrong, the key for me to understanding this is that the reason I think bankers like leverage, obviously, isn't what they say, which is, oh, well, the money would be tied up if we had to have equity. Well, that, that's clear. Away from the economy, they tell you. What? They say it's sucked away. It's taken away from the economy somehow. Yeah, that that's clearly... Uh, not true. Uh, a lie, whatever you want. <laughs> nonsense. That's right. Uh, but it, but the, uh, what it seems to me is, is true. And I think this is the real reason they don't like it mm-hmm. is the bank would be smaller. Well, it does. It, if, if that's true, then it's only because right now it's too, it's too bloated with subsidies because really the only way it would be smaller, the total funding cost of the bank would only increase by the removal of, of subsidies that are associated with that and not with equity. So that's all. In other words, if, if, they, if the size of the bank or the banking industry would go down, it would go down to the right size. Right. I don't. Yeah, I, I, to me, smaller doesn't mean I, I, smaller. That's a feature, not a bug. Because exactly. uh, <laughs> I so, think- so, so from their perspective, the the. Uh, they might be compensated in such a way, and there there are many ways in which this is this manifests itself. But the way that uh, bankers themselves are compensated encourages them to to kind of rely more to magnify the upside, and we go through that in great detail. And they only only want to think about the upside, and of course, you know, with more risk comes more return on average. Maybe they don't even compensate their equity holders enough relative to the risk but uh, but obviously the smaller the base the higher sort of the the magnification on the upside and and also the average because risk and return are are, are tied so they they like the upside and they can live in that world and in addition their borrowing is subsidized so they get to borrow at slightly lower rates than they would have been if they were not enjoying the guarantees even if the guarantees. it seems to me that I, so, Go ahead. So, so it's easier to pass that. So when we have the example of explaining how guarantees work, we have basically, you know, your aunt guaranteeing your loan on your mortgage, and then you get a cheaper interest rate from the bank, and the bank doesn't care if you have equity. So their creditors are not normal creditors in terms of what they demand. But I hear that a lot, and I think that misses the other important point. And I was going to – when I read your book, I was waiting for it, and you do mention it, but I don't, I don't think you emphasize it enough. So let me try to make this point. So – what you're talking about now is if I go to buy a house and I have a rich aunt who's got a much better credit rating and history than I do, I'm going to be able to get a better interest rate if she guarantees the loan than if I try to use my own credit rating. And that's the that's one part of the subsidy. That's one that, part. That the guarantee of, of large financial institutions allows them to borrow money at a lower rate from their creditors than they otherwise would when they issue bonds. So Fannie Mae is a great example of this. Fannie Mae, which was yep. not guaranteed explicitly, but implicitly was, and then did get actually, its bondholders did get all their money back. Mm-hmm. Fannie Mae paid a slightly higher rate than treasuries, but not much, but right. slightly higher because they were some chance that the federal government wouldn't stand behind them. But they were like treasuries with a higher rate. So a lot of people found that appealing. The Chinese government bought a lot of, of that. Uh, my dad held, as I've often mentioned on this program, Fannie Mae bonds. And those people got their money back because yep. uh, of, of the promise. So yep. as a result, Fannie Mae could borrow money relatively cheaply. But the other part, it seems to me, which is much more important, and maybe I'm wrong, is the size of how much how much I can borrow. So yep. if I'm buying a house, if I'm buying a, a $200,000 house and I'm borrowing uh, 160 of it, and I'm putting 20% down, putting 40,000 down. Then, yes, when I borrow the 40, uh, the 160,000, my, my rich aunt's guarantee lets me pay a lower rate of interest. But the cool thing about the rich aunt is that now I can buy a million dollar house that, and put a very small amount down that, that a bank would never let me do. 
and lenders would never lend to to yeah. Goldman Sachs and and Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers if there were only a three percent equity cushion unless they thought it was guaranteed. Well, I mean, it depends whether you use the same forty, the same amount of money. I mean, if you have to 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 do more and put more of your own money, then you know, again, if it's shareholders' money, you know, they they would potentially adjust, but it still is a fraction. If you can have very little of your own money and keep borrowing and borrowing, then of course there would be like a higher leverage and there you definitely have incentive to do that, which is really goes to the heart of what makes banks hate equity so much. So you will tell your aunt that equity is expensive. Right. You don't want to put your own money at risk because it's much nicer to get the upside and be protected on the downside. You can go invest it in treasuries and they'll never lose. And then you do, you get all the upside uh, and magnified. So it's great. And my understanding, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is no debtor, no lender, no creditor would give money to a bank under fixed income conditions with a 3% equity uh, cushion, an in- inadequate cushion, unless they were pretty sure, not not 100%, but pretty sure that there was a rich aunt or a rich uncle, Uncle Sam in, in this case. <laughs> right. So, yeah, you didn't mention when you, you said, you know, people get smarter. We tried so hard to make it, you know, more entertaining to read. We have these cute epigraphs and all of that, right? I mean, yep. <laughs> you know, anyway, and so we have the aunt and then the banks have Uncle Sam. So it's a cute little transition. But anyway, uh Yes. Uh, one of the things that we point out also is the, there is a sort of this maturity rat race phenomenon, which was written about, you know, by Marcus Bernamar and uh, um, other people, DeMar's advisor. There are the papers about that. It's part of the sort of dark side of borrowing. And in banking, what happens is they have this ability to borrow in all kinds of ways. So, for example, you know, people like to talk about repos as sort of the new form of deposits. Well, it's a trick to borrow. And the trick with it is that they all, they, you know, here's a JP Morgan trillions of dollars, really, depending on the accounting system, you know, maybe four trillion. We go through that fortress, supposedly. And, um, and among the numerous ways that they borrow, this repo means basically that I sell you an asset overnight that collateral, and I promise to buy it back. So my promise is basically the, the the promise that I'll buy back that asset from you, and the interest is sort of folded into that. And Because I don't buy it back at the same price. That's right. how the interest right. gets so folded in. And all of that. But the trick there is that this arrangement, since very recently, actually, just since I think 2004 or something in the U.S., is exempt from stay in bankruptcy. So should I... In the imaginary scenario that I actually can't buy it back from you the next day, you could just walk off with it, no matter, not out of the courts, out of the, the frozen bankruptcy process, out of the priorities. So essentially, you jumped ahead of everybody because you own that collateral overnight. So this is among the many ways in which they managed to get the creditors to agree to lend them and, and basically think that they're, that they're safe. So the depositors feel that they have deposit insurance. Some of the creditors have all kinds of collaterals or they have the belief, as you said, of implicit guarantees, in the, in, especially in the case of the largest banks. But even in, in all the case of this, the, the entire system, somehow or other, there is, a, there is a belief that will be paid. It's not true for, for the junior debt of small banks because FDIC might actually impose losses on them maybe. But of course, if they become systemic, then... In the crisis, even debt that was supposed to absorb losses never did. Well, when, in a, just like in, an, in a foxhole, there are no atheists. In a banking crisis, everybody's systemic or at least claims they are. You know, There's always going to be an incentive to explain why my bank is so crucial to the future of the country. You have to pay all my creditors, and then from then on, you know, I can my, – my creditors are nice and allow me to, to borrow under terms that – some other people in the economy or corporations cannot borrow, and therefore they don't. So to go back to my question, do you believe that if banks had larger equity requirements – say, I'm, I'm gonna, let me phrase the question differently. I believe that if banks had larger equity requirements, they would be smaller, and it would be much more difficult for uh, executives and banks to make as much money as they make today. Because I think – I know – I understand there's – 
their their formulas that determine their pay that are based on return on equity, and so they have an incentive to magnify that artificially, even and through accounting tricks, et cetera. But I believe that if we had high equity requirements, they would change their compensation structure. But even if they did, they would be the banks would be smaller and they would not make as much money. So the key here is governance, really. So in all corporations, with most other corporations, the real governance issue is between shareholders and managers. In banks, there's so many creditors that you almost find the governance problem really resembling more of a creditor-borrower problem because it's kind of managers and, and, and sort of narrowly defined shareholders against kind of creditors and deposit insurance. In other words, you know, who gets the upside and the downside? So precisely as you said, one of the corrections that would happen if they had more equities, the equity would bear more of the downside and equity would care more about the downside. And therefore, they might uh, then not allow managers to to be compensated in the ways that encourage risk-taking. Right. Well, the, yeah, that's exactly right. Because right now, the I always point out that, and I got this from, from I think, Gary Stern's book, Too Big to Fail, mm-hmm. uh, who he interviewed a, a long time ago. But in, in a general, generally... The debt holders are the people who care about the downside because that's all they – they don't get the upside. So yeah. they're, they're the ones who make sure that banks don't act too recklessly. And if you take out their downside, there's nobody else. <laughs> I mean, So there, there's no creditors are helpless with their dispersed. They have no governance role. And you know, in other corporations, they would just walk away. But in the case of a bank, somehow they are agreeing to be there, and the banks like it that way. And some people, when I make this claim, they say, well, well, shareholders care about the downside. They don't want to be wiped out. And that's true. But they don't mind if firms take risk. We're not talking about where a firm steals their money. We're talking about our firm right. takes risk. The shareholders get the upside. They diversify so that yep. they have a lot of these, right? Yep. So, so, but still, see, my claim to shareholders, and I've written about this too, is that this system really works only for kind of the managers and the very, very narrowly defined shareholders because diversified shareholders – end up losing from financial instability. So how did the S&P 500 perform as a result of the crisis? So the banks managed to maybe squeeze subsidies out of the rest of us, but then yeah. we all pay dearly. Yeah, it stinks. Uh, so just to clarify, uh, what do you think if you imagined a conversation between the executives of a bank and the executives of a non-bank, say a manufacturer or service provider, um, would the bankers say, hey, guys, you're missing out. This debt's great. You ought to borrow more. What would the, what would the quote, regular corporations say in response to the bankers' encouragement to borrow more? Well, they would say that borrowing is, becomes really tough on the borrower, and the creditors would have all kinds of consequences for the borrower when it gets to, to heavy levels. And that, they, in fact, the debt contracts don't allow them to continue to borrowing, don't allow them to pay out, and the creditors are very nervous people when they lend them. And so they would put covenants in. They would tell them they can't do things without creditor approval. They would behave like like the creditors that worry about the downside. And so they would tell the bankers, you're lucky because your creditors are nicer to you than our creditors are to us. So we've been talking about commercial banks. And, of course, they're nicer because – they have this implicit guarantee. I, I assume that's been my theory from day one, and I it's just um, I try not to fall prey to too much confirmation bias. But it's hard to I don't know what the alternative argument is. Um, but it raises the question. So we've been talking about commercial banks. If we think about investment banks, meaning uh, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs, these are and parts of the commercial banks, Citibank and others have investment bank parts. These are folks who took the money and they didn't put them in mortgages. Directly, they put them into assets, some tied to mortgages. They put them into other types of speculation. They invest the money in a very different way than a commercial bank. Who is lending to them? Who are the net lenders to the investment bank sector? How is it that all of these banks are running leverage levels of 98 to 2, 45 to 1, 97 to 3? Who's providing the liquidity for the investment banks that allowed them to run wild with, with that money? Well, in the end of the day, the, it, it, you, it's all linked together and within the, itself. In other words, there's a lot of inter, interbank 
landing in boring. And this goes back to the people think of separations, but it's very hard to separate because we give money to money market funds and money market fund lends to the bank. And so here you have the depositors' money uh, you know, going some directly to the bank and some to the money market fund. The money market fund then funds the banks and it funds the investment banks, you know, the Europe, it funds the European banks. They fund each other. So there are many ways in which they borrow and then there are many ways in which they invest, as you said. And some of these investments, they also it's come back to the mortgages. The mortgages were securitized. They were made into marketable securities. And not all of it is bad because diversification of risk is good. And so to a point, the, the, all of this is creates what we want the system to do, which is to spread the risk around and lower funding costs and allow productive investments in the economy to be funded. And all of this, there is a role for, for the financial system. But the system gets very distorted because they, they have incentives to get very complicated and very complex and all knotted up and globally too, so that they become kind of very difficult to to resolve or to fail. And that gives them sort of more ability to, to, to continue growing like that inefficiently. But if I look at the balance sheet of, say, uh, Bear Stearns uh, in March of 2008 or of Lehman Brothers in, I think, September of 2008 when, it, when they were both in uh, severe crisis, <clears throat> I thought – Barristan should have been allowed to go bankrupt, and I think then Lehman would have been different. But who knows? Hard to say. But if we look at the creditors, the people who were involved, a lot of them were the other large banks, right? Exactly. But that, but that's okay. You can have that. You can have the banks grow, but just being, you know, owing and lending to one another. This is where we can see the counterparties. We went we go through the book on the, for example, netting. Netting of derivatives basically means that I owe you and you owe me. In market value, not in the same contracts, we net it out. We just pretend that the part that's kind of, you know, I owe you 150 and you owe me 100, and we just erase the 100, and it's just my debt to you of 50. And the balance sheets don't show that. If we didn't net, we'd have bigger balance sheets like they have in Europe and the three, and we show that for, for J.P. Morgan, that's, you know, that snapshot is $1.8 trillion, which is almost doubles the size of the bank, really. Uh, assets and liabilities, which may, means that its equity is that much less as a fraction. Just that is, is with the same counterparty. In other words, that just shows you how interconnected they are. When, they, when we come to regulate counterparty exposures, they scream that having an exposure to the same counterparty of more than 10% of, uh, no more than 10% of their total equity or for their capital, that that's terrible. That's amazing. If you're exposed to, if more of your 10, if 10% or more of your equity is exposed to the risk of one counterparty failing, meaning if they don't pay you, 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 you know, you lose 10% of your equity. That's incredible interconnectedness right there. So there's enormous amount of interconnectedness in this system. And that's partly why we have this systemic risk is that it's sort of like a set of dominoes standing one next to another through various mechanisms. It's sort of they all end up failing at the same time or the failure of one triggers a huge problem. And that's really what is why it's really important to reduce that fragility and why it's also hard. And also why making individual banks a lot safer makes the system so much safer. But we incentivized through policy. We incentivized that complexity. We, we gave them an incentive to that's create what, it. That's, that's what's so perverse about the situation. We are feeding the addiction to something harmful. We're subsidizing, you know, pollution of the system through excessive risk that doesn't, and nothing good, but just, you know, it's sort of people in the system have incentives to, to, to take. And it's not productive risk at all. I'm all for productive risks being taken. And when the banks say, oh, we invest long-term, we do this and that, the real productive long-term investments are made, you know, right here in Silicon Valley. And they are funded with long-term funding, with equity funding, and they can fail. And they do. And it works great because every once in a while they hit a home run and the world's a better place for it. You want to take risk for innovations. I don't have a problem with risk. What I have a problem with is with excessive risk that, that, that does nothing but just, you know, is a leverage risk, is a financial risk that's stacked on top of the risk of actual investments. Yeah, take risk with your money, not mine, unless, exactly. I, unless I agree. If I agree to it, I'm okay. 
<laughs> exactly. Other people's money is also equity money, but the borrowed money comes with that legal commitment and it is hard to untie that commitment. And that's the problem with it. So they should just do much less of that. They should fund less with that. And their incentives are to only promise, 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 you know, legally. And the rest, they, you know, the, when it doesn't work out, it's somebody else's problem. Now, I like your story. Uh, and listeners know that, you know, that I'm very... It, it, it's, I agree with it. So the, let's try to challenge it a little bit. So let me, let me ask the following question. Okay. Now, since the crisis, since 2008, mm-hmm. 2009, banks have got, the biggest banks are bigger than they were before, I think. Mm-hmm. I assume leverage is about the same, if not more. It depends how you measure it. You know, all these things are really, that's a whole can of worms, how you measure. But nobody's prudent. I wouldn't say anybody's gone out and said, gee, we really were irresponsible. <clears throat> it was terrible what we did to the American people. We're going to raise our equity to 10%. They don't have incentives. Right. So it needs to be the whole system, but they have incentive to compete to, to lever more. Correct. So given that, given that's your story, and it's my story too, why have we had another crisis? What are, why would banks be prudent at all? Why did banks buy credit default swaps? Why bother with that? Why didn't they just be reckless and collect a lot of money when things crashed and keep going and enjoy the upside, avoid the downside. Why is there any prudence in the system whatsoever? One of the things that's stopping it a little bit is, is we do have regulation in place. I mean, this is, you know, recognized that in banking, you must have regulation to maintain the depositors funding and, and to prevent uh, ever since we have deposit insurance, we, we do have supervision regulation by the FDIC and by other regulators, and banks are regulated in every country. The problem is that the reg- so it's the regulator's job because the creditors want to feel safe and the depositors in particular want to feel safe. What you then have is it falls on regulators to contain the risk in this system. The credit default swaps were actually part of the attempts to to pacify the regulators, to tell them the risk is gone. And then, therefore, we don't have to worry about it, except the risk all went to AIG. Yeah, well, I like it. When I was explaining to someone that AIG was a bad thing, that, that was someone said, well, but people made those – people were insured. They had – you know, I'm thinking okay. people were insured. J.P. Morgan Chase, Lehman Brothers, they, they went – you're right. They went through the motions – and they, they, it does matter whether your insurance company is, is, is solvent. Exactly. So the insurance company ended up accumulating all these default risks, which then nobody also cared to monitor in terms of credit worthiness, which reduced the quality of loans too. And uh, so in this process, you know, a lot of risk got built up in AIG and these regulators didn't keep track the risk to where it was going and allowed, you know, all kinds of entities in the shadow banking system to be backed up by by regulated banks, all kinds of buildup of the risk that um, that ended up coming back to haunt all of us. So there was a regulatory failure before, which, of course, they now want to start the story where they saved us all from worse disasters. Right. But the story really goes back to how they failed to contain this risk in the beginning and how they're continuing to make the same mistakes now. So how, explain that a little further. How, how is it that credit default swap purchases by banks, which I always hear them say, well, look, we were prudent. We weren't reckless. We had insurance. And, I, you know, my response is, yeah, but you insure, since everybody insured with the same person, you, you kind of right. didn't, or too many of the same people. But, but there, you're telling me that some of that credit default swap purchase, that insurance, was for the purpose of complying with regulations or just yes. satisfying. How is that? Explain that. Because the regulators would want them to have some equity backing, but they told them the risk is gone, therefore they don't need. So it was basically allowing the regulators to think that they were they didn't have any credit any credit risk anymore on their balance sheet. It was gone to AIG, and they were they were all safe then. Which and is the so, same. Which is the same argument they made with AAA. We have AAA. Exactly, so, exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly the same. They would say, "Look, we invest in something safe." Now the regulation allows European banks with no backing by equity at all, to invest throughout the Eurozone, pretending that all debt within the Eurozone is safe like cash. That is saying that the Greek debt that's paying 20% is as good as cash. And you can back it up with totally with, with, with boring. 
That's because well, that's because the Martian central bank will bail them out eventually. Um, that's what I'm counting on. So, but but this is just this shows you how crazy and political some of these regulations end up being. And they always would sort of their banks would have then incentives. And this is actually how we blame some of the structure of this regulation with interconnectedness, because they all tend to go to where the regulation views it as safe, but it's not actually safe and it pays a little bit more return. And then they can scale that up. So if the regulations all say the regulators say, oh, the risk is gone. Oh, fine. You can then do lots more with borrowed money. Then all of a sudden AIG needs bailout. So that, that's, you know, they replaced basically the, the default risk of their creditors with the default risk of AIG itself. Yeah, great. So what can be done about it? Um, let's first talk about your proposals. I'm going to give you, I'll give you some others to react to, but what, what would mm-hmm. you suggest we do to stop this from happening again? Well, the, there's just some really simple, obvious things to do, which is, First of all, we are very concerned about the weakness of many banks. So we, we, there is claims and there is signs that some banks, especially in Europe, but even in the U.S., uh, are really weaker than they appear. And all these stress tests don't impress me very much uh, because they focus on accounting numbers and they, follow, they allow risk weights and they use all kinds of models that I don't believe. And they don't actually take into account the collateral damages and all the lot of the interconnectedness. I, I'm not sure all the details when I start looking at them, uh, they're kind of numbing. But to me, it's obvious that where we are, we now know where to go uh, from here, which is to... Um, if I had to put them to a test, I would tell all the banks to go raise some equity, but equity, common equity, not from Warren Buffett with promises of 9%, but common equity. If not, if somebody cannot raise equity at any price at all, not at a price that they like, but at any price, there's a flag about that. They're either too opaque or too risky or too or insolvent. And we want to know that now. So if we knew now who's weak, then we would actually deal with them and kind of remove them from the system because sick banks are, you know, tend to lend to unhealthy borrowers, maintain bad loans on their books and not make new loans. So they're just a drag, basically. That's like savings and loans were allowed to, with forbearance to, to stick around too long. So we want to clean out from, and that could actually also kind of, clean out some excess in this industry. And then the viable banks should be strengthened by retaining their earnings. First and foremost, that's equity dollars that are already there. So allowing dividends is like completely, you know, favoring very few banks. The rest of society is completely insane. There's no benefit to that at all. And then they tell you they can't lend. I mean, they're not even lending their deposits, let alone these retained earnings. They want to do something else with them than lending. Of course, they like to threaten that they won't lend. But in any case, uh, you know, they, they should be strengthened right away and we should aim for much, much, much higher. We've got plenty of time to figure out, you know, when to stop. We know what to do now, which is to strengthen this system. That's what we suggest. And we suggest that the targets that Basel three set and the structure of that regulation is entirely insufficient and entirely flawed and doesn't learn the obvious lessons from what just happened. Well, uh, yeah, Basel III is the latest round of international banking regulations. I always find it funny when people say, well, we need international regulations because that way there's a level playing field. And <laughs> first of all, I don't care about a level playing field per se. Exactly. I, I don't, I don't exactly. really – if other, bank, other countries want to subsidize their banks, that's their problem. But, exactly. But when people say they want an international system, what they really mean is they want a system that's far away <laughs> – with limited oversight from the domestic population so that the insiders can write the rules. And so I assume that Basel III is the people who are most concerned about it are the banks, and I assume they spend a lot of time trying to influence it. Oh, yeah. This is this is uh, the politics of banking on which we have one chapter in the book. There's no talking about banking without talking about politics. It's very highly political. And basically in Basel, you had governments coming in with their bank lobbyists together to impact international agreement, which ends up being a race to the bottom, really, with very few people fighting for, you know, for a safer 
coordination coordinated effort and you know the reason you, you what you want to really coordinate is you want to coordinate the resolution mechanisms if we have any hope of allowing banks to fail that are global banks so that's super important but that's not the solution to the problem the solution to the problem is as you said that every country makes sure that its banks are safe and we have a little bit of a race to the top when somebody tells me that they would move their money to French banks I, I say my heart goes out to the French taxpayers in that case <laughs> you know that's right I always yeah uh that's really crazy. Good that, for you. Uh, I, yeah, help they, yourself. Yeah. They, also, they also end up winning against other industries because if you bloat them with subsidies, then they, you know, they, they end up taking people who might be productively employed elsewhere. We just don't know anymore what's right because it's all distorted. Well, it's, worse, it's even worse than that because, I mean, I've said this many times. I'll keep saying it many times. The other result is that we allocate the capital that we do have towards, say, too many houses instead yeah. of better medical care, better cars, more yeah. We subsidize. subsidize, So that's what some of the NYU folks are saying. And, you know, so the the way we subsidize, in fact, borrowing for housing, uh, maybe we have too much housing. And uh, certainly some of the way banks behaved left a lot of empty buildings around the world. So I think it was um, I think it was the late 20s or early 30s, certainly before 1932, obviously, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he was governor of New York, said that uh, we, federal deposit insurance can't work because inevitably uh, banks will take too much risk and then creditor depositors won't be have to be careful because they're, they're going to be backed by the government. And so it, it'll spiral out of control. He was onto something there. Uh, he eventually uh, uh, supported it when he was president. But but the point is, is that this whole idea of insurance – which starts off as a nice idea that small depositors don't have to worry about whether the banks are safe, somehow gets extended to people who lend money to Bear Stearns overnight to buy stuff that's highly risky. Uh, And so the question is, what's feasible to stop that from happening? Is it really – your solution is to raise equity requirements. Uh, Richard Fisher, the Governor of uh, – uh, not the governor, the uh, head, head of the – president of the Dallas Fed mm-hmm. has a proposal where he says if you lend money to an investment bank, when you do that, you have to sign a piece of paper saying that you're aware of the fact that that money is at risk. Now, I'm not sure that's going to make a difference. It's it's interesting idea. My preference would be we don't bail anybody out at all, um, period. Uh which of these do you think have the highest political chance of passage? Which of these might actually be supported by the American people and make its way into some real-world solution? Well, I know what I would prefer, and I can argue why, why, why that's better. So you say not to bail out. The problem with that is the collateral damage of defaults. Uh, that's the problem. So in other words, what happens – when when a bank fails and what are the stark choices so if it, it you know it depends where you want to leave the regulations in terms of in terms of you know pre- trying to prevent that uh, before we get to 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 failures or even to distress by my book so if you don't bail out you know we didn't bail out Lehman and it just has has a collateral damage so financial crisis if should that happen tend to linger in terms of their interaction with recessions and other uh, and other variables, so that's what you know, uh, uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff show, uh, and other and other people, uh, you know, Shorelick and um, I forget now. Um, I'm not sure I agree with them, but keep going. But but in any, I don't know. But in any case, the I am I, I favor deposit insurance to a point. Because runs can be inefficient and runs can start like in the movie. It's true that even in the depression, and we make this point in the book, usually depositors knew which banks were healthy or not. And But I favor uh, explicit deposit insurance to a point, but I favor effective regulation after that to really contain the safety net uh, so that it's not needed as much. What Richard Fisher is saying is that we need to have uh, we need to have loss absorption. So we all kind of agree on that. It's a question of what form it takes. If you 
say that I want the creditors to agree that they would suffer losses, again, we go back to who there are the, the, the creditors. And if banks lend to one another, what's the worth of the piece of paper that they signed this if they themselves are going to become weaker and then we'll care about that. So it's an issue of who can absorb losses. What we're saying is basically that there's a lot of risk capital in the economy and that banks should just approach that that investment community much more than they want to. And so the regulation should focus on making sure that they deal with the investors that really know they will bear the downside much more and do much less of any kind of signing of pieces of paper you know, triggers and, 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 and promises and all of that, that we have fewer promises. So what level of equity would you want to see? Well, people always ask about the numbers and I'm very happy to have people like, you know, John Cocker and, and Pharma say, oh, 50% sounds good to me because <laughs> then I sound so sane when I say 20 to 30 <laughs> percent and I'm such a moderate, right? That's right. And the bankers say three. <laughs> so that's good. So, so what Cochrane said was, until we don't, until it doesn't matter, you know. In other words, until there are no more bailouts because they can stand on their own feet. So um, we said, kind of as a as a sort of as a starting point, almost at least twenty to keep it within twenty to thirty percent because it's a matter of dynamically allowing the equity to absorb losses and not kind of always working to a number. So we want a range. We want that conservation buffer because equity is there to what happens when you lose is the equity is supposed to absorb that to a point, but then you should kind of build it up. You shouldn't pay and all of that. So that concept of a conservation buffer. So we talk about precisely how to make it work. And we kind of throw out the 20 to 30%, but we know and we point out that the big can of worms is who puts the numbers on both sides of that balance sheet. And is it market values? Is it book values? Exactly what do regulators look at to tell them, you know, what is what's going on in terms of the, the dynamics of it? Because balance sheets, accounting balance sheets are come every three months and they tend to lag. And there are all kinds of accounting conventions there about how you account for losses. And there's lots and lots of issues there about what's the value of your assets, what's the value of or liabilities, therefore, how much equity you have. So that's why it's a very... That's a whole discussion that needs to be had. We just wanted to kind of stick our position as a lot more than what they're talking about right now, a lot more. Yeah, but you do raise the the problem, which is measurements much yep. trickier than it, than it yep. sounds. Yep. And I think, you know, fundamentally, it's a political problem. Uh, as you point out, you can't avoid the politics. The bankers yep. are very politically powerful. Yeah. Um, I think until the American people demand that they be treated differently, which we're getting to, we're getting there. Uh, you know, I was very depressed in the last presidential election in America that neither candidate, nobody, mm-hmm. neither candidate, Obama or Romney, felt that this was a central issue. Yep. Um, until a candidate makes it a central issue, uh, we're, it doesn't really matter because the banks will manipulate the regulations, manipulate the system. Yep. To me, it has to come from the politicians saying. Yep. No more. And they're not going to say no more until we say no more okay. because they have another voice that says more. And that's why we bought the book. That's precisely why we bought the book, because uh, you just couldn't penetrate this unless you you got a little more political pressure uh, to that something is not quite right, that we didn't that we, we don't want to wait for another major crisis. Uh, and we already have crises in Europe that could implode and affect us more, you know, over time. We don't know. But there's no reason to maintain this inefficient system going. Uh, crisis or not, you know, every day it's not a, an efficient system. And so, and indeed, the, both parties seem reluctant to to do something. But we have a little more noise right now. And the noise is good. Bernanke admitted yesterday that... Uh, he agrees there's a problem. That's a big step because they've been in denial about this all the time and they refuse to engage. Well, yes, he knows where his bread is buttered. And um, uh, it's your quote, right? Didn't you say it's hard? It's, what's the quote from, you have a quote from Upton Sinclair. Do you remember it? I, I can find it. Oh, there are multiple quotes that are cute, no, but, right? No, but this one. One quote is, you can't teach somebody something if your salary depends on not understanding it. Yeah, that's the one. That's You can't teach someone. Yeah. Here's I've got the exact words here. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. So exactly. it takes Ben and, Bernanke and, and, a while. Also for the politics on banking, there was a quote from an Austrian playwright that said, the king is naked, but under such splendid robes. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that's that. That's very apt. Yep. My guest today has been Anad Admati. Anad, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.